Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Nicholas Flamel. So I'll start us off with a brief summary of what happened in the chapter. Uh, Harry is following Dumbledore's orders not to return to the Mirror of Erised or to find it, um, but he begins having recurring nightmares of the night that his parents died in a flash of green light and a high, cold laugh. Uh, meanwhile, the Gryffindor Quidditch team is training hard to beat Slytherin in the House Championship, but they find out that Snape will be refereeing their next game. After Neville is jinxed by Malfoy, Harry gives him a chocolate frog to cheer him up. When looking at the Albus Dumbledore card that it came with, Harry sees Nicholas Flamel's name and remembers that that's where he's seen it before. Hermione looks up Flamel when alchemy is mentioned and finds out that he has created the Philosopher's Stone. Harry wins the Quidditch game in a record time of less than five minutes, and as he's leaving, he sees Snape walking into the Forbidden Forest. He flies over and overhears Snape and Quirrell talking about the stone. The trio then concludes that Snape is trying to make Quirrell help him get past Fluffy and the other barriers to get to the stone, and that therefore the only thing standing between Snape and the stone is Quirrell. Okay, so there are a lot of questions um, in regards to Snape this chapter. So um, Harry, first of all, feels as if Snape is following him around the castle, Um, and there's a lot of questions around this. So is Harry just paranoid, or is he actually following Harry around? And could this be because he's actually trying to protect Harry? Um, Because as we know, he was trying to protect Harry um, in the last Quidditch game when Quirrell was actually cursing him off his broom. I think that's right. I think he is trying to protect him. At this point, Snape obviously knows that Quirrell is up to something, um, either from his conversation with Dumbledore or just from his own investigations into Halloween and the Quidditch game. So clearly Snape knows that there's someone in the castle that wants to harm Harry, And I think that's why he's been following him around. I think that's a very good explanation. And that's probably also why he wanted to referee the game, Mm -hmm. right? But then, I I think we were talking about this, after Harry wins so quickly, Snape looks really upset. Right. So why do you think that is? Do you think, like, you know, he really is into the interhouse, you know, rivalry between Gryffindor and Slytherin? Or is it more that he's just trying to keep up appearances of being sort of annoyed at Gryffindor winning or something like that? Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't really think of any other reason other than that, you know, he he is annoyed. He doesn't, I mean, I think he hates Gryffindors in general. We know that. Yeah. So I think he is, you know, he maybe, he you know, he didn't want Harry to get cursed or die, but he also didn't really want Harry to win spectacularly. He doesn't want good things for Harry, He but he does want him to be safe, you know? Yeah. He doesn't want another thing for Harry to show off his fame and superiority. Maybe he also feels a little bit shown up because he was going to be the one to protect Harry or to intervene if something were to happen, mm-hmm. but then Dumbledore shows up to the match, and yeah. so Snape is kind of like... Oh, well, I guess I didn't really need to referee after all, mm. you know, like, why so did I So is that why he looks, because don't they say that when they walk out to the field, Snape looks upset? Snape looks particularly upset, yeah. And that's probably because he sees Dumbledore? I don't know. I mean, maybe, but why would he care that much? Yeah, I, I mean, guess. it's not Unless he's, really like, clear. got this really big hero complex that we wouldn't really associate with Snape at all. Um, it doesn't make sense. I think, I think they just maybe imagine that he looks particularly nasty. Yeah. Because they expect him to. 
a lot of this stuff, even with the following and all that, it, it could a lot be in Harry's head or Harry's perception is a little bit blowing it out of proportion. But we do know that Snape is trying to protect him. And so it could be a combination of those two things. And also that Snape, you know, has this inner turmoil from wanting to protect Harry because he loved Lily, but also really kind of hating Harry and not wanting him to succeed. And especially in this type of um, show-offy way. Right. And I think also it's important to note that Harry has just basically come up with a really good theory on how to deal with Snape in general. Accidentally. Yeah, accidentally. Because he wins the match really quickly in like less than five minutes. And then he doesn't have to deal with Snape anymore in that like area. So he's learning that oftentimes the best way to deal with Snape being a bully is just to avoid him as much as possible. And he's going to pretty much follow that. Yeah, he that. definitely does that. He, he follows that for pretty much the next four books. And I think it's his assumption that um, in some ways, you know, just avoid him in general. But I think he also feels like the more time that he allows himself to be around Snape, the more likely Snape is to bully him or something. You know, it's, he's tolerable yeah. in a few minutes, period. But beyond that, Snape will usually um, do something to put him down or harm him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's a very good way of, of mitigating the amount of bullying that Snape can put on him. The most important part of the chapter is Snape's discussion with Quirrell that Harry overhears um, in the forest. So he sees Snape walking into the Forbidden Forest. He's getting ready. He's alone. He still has his broom with him. So he flies over the forest and is kind of hovering among the trees is what I picture. And he's looking down on the two of them. Um, So why don't you read us a little bit of the conversation so we can analyze it? Sure. Yeah. So it starts off with Snape actually referring directly to the Philosopher's Stone. Quirrell asks him why they wanted to meet there in the Forbidden Forest, and Snape says, Oh, I thought we'd keep this private, said Snape, his voice icy. Students aren't supposed to know about the Philosopher's Stone, after all. So in that way, Harry gets confirmation that he was right, their instincts were right, that the the Philosopher's Stone is at Hogwarts and it's being protected. Next, Snape asks him, have you found out how to get past that beast of Hagrid's yet? Uh, And then he says, you don't want me as your enemy, Quirrell. And then Harry doesn't hear what happens next because an owl hoots loudly near him, but he steadies himself in time to hear Snape say, your little bit of hocus pocus, I'm waiting. And then Snape ends the conversation by saying, we'll have another little chat soon when you've had time to think things over and decided where your loyalties lie. So let's just examine all those things that he says and what they mean to Harry, who has a lot of substantial biases against Snape, and what they might mean to a first-time reader, and then what they actually mean, um, now that we know the whole story, having read all these books. Mm -hmm. So what do you think of that conversation if you're Harry? How does Harry interpret what he's just heard? So there's a few components of the conversation. So I think the first part, he mentioned something about Beast of Hagrid's. Yeah. How do you, how do you, have you found out how to get past that beast? Yeah. So that's Fluffy, the dog we know. And so I think Harry is, is interpreting this as Snape asking Quirrell, do you know how to get past the beast? I need you to figure it out for me so that I can get past it and get to the stone. Right. Okay. Um, he also mentioned something about Hocus Pocus, um, which is kind of unclear what that means. Right, because Harry didn't hear the whole sentence. Harry, so. Right. But I think maybe we can assume that Harry interprets that as Quirrell has some sort of magical protection as part of the stone's protection. Right. And so Snape wants to know how to get past that. Right. And then the end, uh, we'll have another little chat soon when you've had time to think things over and decided where your loyalties lie. 
Yeah, so I guess uh, Harry interprets that as Snape saying, you better be loyal to me and help me get the stone. Right. Um, and so backing up, what what do we know is actually happening here? Right, so what we know is actually happening is that Snape is acting on more or less on Dumbledore's orders to sort of keep tabs on Quirrell and make sure that he's not doing anything too dangerous and then he doesn't get to the stone. Mm-hmm. So the purpose of this conversation from Snape's perspective is figure out what Quirrell knows and how close he is to trying to get it and try to prevent him from doing that. That have you found out how to get past that beast of Hagrid's is his way of letting Quirrell know that 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 he knows that Quirrell is trying to get past Fluffy mm-hmm. and that he knows that Quirrell has been attempting to for a while. Mm-hmm. So Snape really here is saying like, hey, I know what you're doing. You better stop. Yeah. Uh, and then he says, you don't want me as your enemy, Quirrell, like saying again, like it's a threat, but it's like a good guy threat being mm-hmm. sort of like a, you know, you're messing with the wrong people here. You don't want to be doing this. And then he says something about your little bit of hocus pocus. I think actually he's referring to Halloween night um, when Quirrell let the troll in. He's, oh, he's saying like, I know that was you that did that. I'm waiting for you to tell me why. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you better have a really good explanation for it. And then he ends it with saying, you know, we'll have another little chat soon. Decide where your loyalties lie. He's really saying, are you loyal to Dumbledore right. and me? Or are you loyal to someone else? Be mm-hmm. it Voldemort or the Death Eaters or yourself or whomever you're trying to get the stone for. And you'd better decide that you're loyal to Dumbledore because that's the only way. So the last really crucial point of this um, conversation for the plot of the book and for uh, Harry and the reader the first time through is that after Harry relays all this information to Ron and Hermione, they basically come to the conclusion that there's all these protective enchantments on the stone protecting it, that Snape has figured out how to get past all of them except for Fluffy and whatever Quirrell's protection is. And so Hermione sums that up by saying, so you mean the stone's only safe as long as Quirrell stands up to Snape? And they don't have a lot of confidence in Quirrell's no. ability to stand up to Snape. So this basically throws them into panic mode where they have to now try to figure out how to beat Snape there, um, which, as we know, will end up being the driving force behind the final events of the book. So something I thought of when looking back at this conversation um, is the kind of the element of the Death Eater and Voldemort connection here. So, you know, Snape is a former Death Eater. He has a dark mark. So Voldemort is basically next to him right now and is always next to him and around him when Quirrell is around him. And I hadn't really thought about this before, but I mean, I'm assuming that Snape is the only former Death Eater that's in the castle, but I wonder if he has some sort of physical or, you know, emotional reaction to Voldemort's presence and you know, just based on the Dark Mark connection, he mm. will feel it because he feels it when Voldemort returns later. So right. how can he not, you know, kind of know that Voldemort is near? Or does he have some sense? And is this why he's so suspicious of Quirrell? Yeah, there may be some of that. I, I, I think that we can say that he doesn't have any, like, really strong physical sensations. Because Voldemort is such an incorporeal form right now, Mm -hmm. he's basically just a leech on Quirrell. He's not, like, a real being. He's more a spirit than Mm -hmm. a being. So um, I think that we can safely say that Snape doesn't feel his presence in the same way that he would feel Voldemort's presence in the real real flesh. But he may have, like, a tingling Mm -hmm. of something on his dark mark or something like that. But I'm sure that Voldemort himself has prepared 
himself and Quirrell for this inevitability because they believe Snape to still be a loyal servant of Dumbledore's Mm -hmm. at this point in time. I'm sure that, you know, Voldemort has either told Quirrell or, or just kept it to himself and somehow set up his own protections to sort of ward Snape off from recognizing him or realizing that he's there because he, he will know that Snape still has the dark mark and that he would feel it if Voldemort's presence was nearby or something like that. So I would imagine that Voldemort may have accounted for that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, he must have. And he also, you're right, he is not really, you know, he's very, very weak. And that's the point of this whole thing. So that's why he wouldn't be feeling him. But I do wonder if maybe, um, you know, Dumbledore is suspicious and Snape has his own intellectual suspicions. But I wonder if if there's maybe some kind of magical connection that does draw him in some way to Quirrell and say, you know, something's going on here. He may have that more than any other teacher or anyone else in the castle. Yeah. And it may be that Snape's position as former Death Eater, now spy, does make him sort of the one that Dumbledore tasks these kind of tasks with the most. Uh, just because, you know, he's like, you used to be close to Voldemort. You know all of his ins and outs and things like that. So I'm going to task you with all of these sort of tasks regarding Voldemort's, uh, you know, or potential Voldemort, because uh, mm-hmm. they don't really know that Voldemort's doing this yet. Mm-hmm. So there are some hints in this chapter related to Snape's abilities as a legilimens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Harry often gets the sense in this chapter that Snape can read his mind, um, which is the first sort of glimpse into the foreshadowing of this that we're going to see in several books until it's finally revealed in Order of the Phoenix that that is what he can do and that he probably has been doing that to Harry all along. Yeah, so just to remind everyone, um, legilimency is the reading of minds, and occumency is blocking people from reading your mind. Yes. Um, so we're going to be using those terms in a minute. So it's interesting to think about the skill that Snape has and in his interactions with Quirrell. So Quirrell either must be a very accomplished occumens to have avoided being found out by Snape because Snape is so accomplished as a legilimens, we know. Yeah. Or maybe there are some rules regarding legilimency. Yeah, it's possible that there are actual laws about this. It seems like something that a magical body would legislate on. If I was going to be a citizen of, you know, Great Britain as a wizard or whatever, I would want the Ministry of Magic to make legilimency illegal, except under like very special circumstances like police interrogations or special circumstance. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't want my neighbor just to be able to go up to me and be like, hey, yeah, I'm reading your mind right now, and I know that you stole my steam shovel last week. So, (laughs) yeah, I think that that's, it's it's very a morally gray area, right? Because people's thoughts really should have that protection and privacy that we afford them to right now in, in muggle society. But in wizard society, they're so much more vulnerable. And so I would expect there to be laws in the Ministry of Magic about this, but we've never heard about them. So maybe if there aren't laws, maybe there are just ethical guidelines or a decorum, sort of like etiquette, where it's just like, you don't read people's minds um, in general. And like, if you do, then, you know, you're, you're guilty of an ethical violation and people will look down on you for that. So the fact that Snape does it to Harry all the time, either he's, it's just down to his hatred of Harry or uh, he thinks that Harry's position as a student and him as a teacher makes it sort of like... He won't get caught or found out. Or it's possible that Snape, in sort of acting as a guardian of this book, thinks that it's okay or morally acceptable for him to read Harry's mind in these circumstances because he's doing it for his protection. So it's hard to say what his 
thinking is here, but we can definitely say that either he's not using legitimacy on Coral, or that he is, but Coral is very good at occlumency and blocking him. Yeah, and it's interesting because in on in one way, I think that if I were Snape, I would definitely try to be using it because I'm so suspicious of Coral. But at the same time, I feel like he must not be because I can't imagine that Quirrell is a very skilled occupant. I mean, he may be, but he doesn't seem very skilled in a lot of other ways. Um, he's a pretty vulnerable um, person who is literally having someone else take over his brain right now. Well, not his brain, just sort of leeching on his soul. But I see your point. I think I would argue that he actually is a lot more accomplished than we see because uh, he is sort of he's putting, playing up, a role. He's yeah. putting up a front of being incompetent. You know, because no one suspects the really incompetent guy of being the mastermind behind everything. So... Like with his stutter. Yeah. I mean, all of that is invented. Yeah. So I, I really think that he we should give him a little bit more credit. He may actually be an accomplished Occlumens. Um We know that he was a very skilled wizard before his stutter and things started happening, which of course is when he met Voldemort. Mm-hmm. So it may be that he just always has been very talented and just now is playing the part of a bumbling idiot. So now that we've talked Snape to death, uh, I'd like (laughs) to look at another great character moment in this chapter, which is with Neville. So Neville's entrance in this chapter, um, he walks into the, well, not walks, he bunny hops into (laughs) Gryffindor Tower with his legs locked um, and reveals that Malfoy has jinxed him. Uh, And this reveals, again, his emotional insecurity and his absolute ineptitude with magic, um, that he wasn't able to either find the counter jinx or ask anybody about it because he was too embarrassed. Yeah, and then Harry says some things to him. Harry says, you're worth 12 of Malfoy. Right. Um, And that's, you know, a big statement, especially coming from Harry. And so Neville really takes that to heart. And he actually repeats what Harry has said to him to Malfoy when they're at the Quidditch game and Malfoy is bullying all of them. He says, I'm worth 12 of you, Malfoy, and then ends up in a fight with Crab and Goyle. (laughs) Yeah, Um, he takes on Crab and Goyle (laughs) single-handedly. So he gets uh, beaten up pretty badly, but it is a big turning point for him. Um, He does, you know, stand up to his abilities. And I think it's important that it's because of his friends or his newly becoming friends with Mm -hmm. Harry and Ron and Hermione that they bolster him up. Yeah, they give him self-confidence. You know, Harry's statement that Neville was worth 12 of Malfoy, I think, was a big moment for Neville. And, you know, Harry gives him a chocolate frog and then that becomes really important because he gets the wizard card Mm -hmm. and... And they figure out who Nicholas Flamel is and stuff. But it's hiding a much deeper character shift for Neville, which is that he learns how to stand up to bullies. And he learns that it's not the end of the world to lose a fight either. You know, he does get beat up pretty badly. But Madame Pomfrey fixes him up and says he'll be fine. So, you know, it turns out that when you stand up to your bullies, things can change. And he, for the rest of the series, isn't just the object of bullies. He's also a much stronger character. So this was really a big turning point. And it'll come back around again at the end of the book. Right. At the end of the book, he will also stand up to his friends. And as Dumbledore says, it's a harder thing to stand up to your friends than even your Mm -hmm. enemies. And so he, most people, right, would be scared to stand up to their friends, especially new friends when they're someone who's so bullied. And we'll talk about this much more later, but this is a huge moment for Neville. And I think Neville is often overlooked in general, but especially in this first book, just re- on this reread, I'm noticing how tied he is with the trio, first of all, and how just brave and, you know, in- integral he is in the whole first book mm-hmm. leading up to the rest of the series. So he really is sort of quietly 
having a lot of character development, yeah. um, even in this first book of the series. Yeah, and his moral compass, I think, is innately tied to Harry's and Ron's and Hermione's in a lot of ways. You know, he stands up to them not just, you know, because he feels like it. He stands up to them because he feels like they're acting out of line and that they're acting selfishly. And granted, he doesn't actually know what they're really doing, but he stands up to them all the same because he thinks that it's the right thing to do. He thinks that they're going to cost Gryffindor the House Cup and that they're acting selfishly and that they need to be stopped. And so he stands up to them. But it actually ends up being like a really great moment for him then too because he gets rewarded for it and he ends up winning the House Cup because of that. So yeah, it was great. So a few miscellaneous points here at the end of the chapter. Um, One is there's a perspective shift. So J.K. Rowling puts us with the spectators in the Quidditch game, mostly Ron slash Hermione, kind of generally one section of the spectators um, where we see the fight with Malfoy and Neville and all that. And so we're really with them. We're not with Harry at all. And although the game is only five minutes long in reality um we're never with harry during the game we don't know you know what it was like when he saw that snitch or anything we just um have the beginning and then the spectators and then the end when harry has won and so this may have something to do with um rowling's distaste for writing quidditch games which we discussed earlier you know it's easier to talk about the character interactions rather than being in Harry's head during the Quidditch game, which Mm -hmm. is understandable. But it's also, it's cool, and it doesn't always happen in the later games. I think, you know, we'll have to see if it happens at all in the later books, but it's pretty cool, and we did get to see a fun few minutes of interaction without Harry. Yeah, I think I do recall that in the third book, um, where Quidditch is a big focus, there's three whole matches. She does actually write from Harry's perspective, Mm -hmm. and I think all of them, at least in part. So she does get better at it. Um, but clearly in this first book, again, she just really didn't like writing them. Yeah. Another topic that I noticed was um, the ages of wizards. So um, when they're looking up Nicholas Flamel, we um, figure out Flamel and his wife are 600 and something years old. And we know that's because of their possession of the Philosopher's Stone and how it extends your life. But I was wondering, you know, is I think Dumbledore is pretty old too. And I wondered... You know, if other wizards are, is is the lifespan in general just longer? Yeah, so I looked this up, um, and when Dumbledore died in book six, uh, he was 115 years old. He was born in, I think, 1882. Um, So obviously, you know, wizards do live longer. I don't know whether that's the result of some specific kind of magic, or it's just that the wizard subspecies of humans live longer for some reason. But it, it is interesting because... Dumbledore doesn't show a lot of signs of being so old that he's going to die of old age. And of course, he doesn't die of old age. You know, based on the way that he acts and speaks and interacts with people, I would guess him to be in his 70s, maybe. Um, But he's actually 110 at the time of this book, or 109. Um, So clearly, you know, wizards do age a lot more slowly than humans. Yeah, it's interesting. And I guess we don't really know. We can just speculate. But I wonder... If that has to do with, because Dumbledore is a very powerful wizard, you know, maybe he knows some things that will help him prolong his life magically. So I wonder, you know, does it have to do with your power and ability? You know, do some wizards die of, I mean, obviously they they can die from, you know, an accident or a disease, but I'm just wondering if there's ways that um, if you're a more powerful wizard, you can live longer, or if in general the lifespan is you know, around 100 instead of being around 80 or something. I don't know. To my knowledge, I don't know if any wizards in this series die of old age at any point. Mm-hmm. Um, besides Nicholas Flamel and his wife. Right. 
who of course were relying on the elixir of life from the philosopher's stone to keep them alive. Um, but aside from the two of them, I don't think there are any wizards that die of old age in this whole series. So we might say based on that, that wizards can live for a, an undetermined, but extremely long time. Yeah. Certainly not 600 years, but maybe 130 years, 140 years might not be too far off base. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and Nicholas Flamel. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. Feel free to email us at harrypodcast7 at gmail.com with any questions or comments you have. And stay tuned for next time when we climb aboard Chapter 14, Norbert the Norwegian Ridgeback. I'm Madeline. And I'm David. And we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast. Knox.